As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at ArmorAll.com. ArmorAll. Less work, more clean. Terms apply. The race is on, and whatever your feeling is on the way the championship ended, it has been a remarkable and at times controversial season full of brilliant driving performances. So we have picked our top 10 drivers of 2021. I'm Ed Straw, and joining me to argue about the rankings are Mark Hughes and special guest Kieran Chandock. Hello, Kieran. Yeah, we'll start with you. Uh, right now, with the, with the dust still sort of up in the air after after Abu Dhabi, there's a, there's a lot going on, but... Looking at the wider picture, which is what this is all about, it's it has been an amazing season, hasn't it? Yeah, absolutely extraordinary. Um, you know, I think I've often said my favourite season of F1 is 1997 for the drama, controversy, um, the racing, the number of teams in the fight. But this one has got to be right up there. I mean, you can't get a more dramatic finish than, than what we had. Um, it was certainly controversial and, and continues to be so. Um but actually, I think the individual races, bearing in mind we had more, you know six more races than we had back in '97, were sensational. I can only think of maybe two or three sort of dull races this season, really. So um, yeah, brilliant, brilliant year of F1. Yeah, I'd agree with that. And, and you'd have to say, Mark Hughes, that because it's been such a great season of races, we have seen these drivers really pushed to the maximum and challenged. And it's been really interesting to follow how the, the relative performance level of everyone has evolved. Yes, and it's been remarkable how the two title contenders, they've lifted their, their own performances, have fought each other and have, they've sort of lifted themselves clear of the field. And even though um, they're in quite different cars from each other, the two title contenders, um, they, they still sort of were together beyond the rest of the field. And, um, you know, it, 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 I think it was just, I can't remember what the percentage is, but it's an extraordinarily high percentage of um, the, those two guys on the, on the front row together. And they would invariably then just disappear off the road, up the road together. Uh, extraordinary season. We're going to be looking at the the whole field, all of the drivers obviously eligible for our, our top 10 ranking. Now, at the race, we always do a cumulative ranking based on uh, the, the the average, if you like, of myself, Mark and Scott Mitchell, who unfortunately was going to be with us on this podcast, but had to uh, withdraw at the last moment. So th- the race's ranking is, is a cumulative one. Green has also, does, has also put together his own list, and we're going to argue about it a little bit. But before we get into the top 10 itself... Let's just have a quick look at some of the strong candidates who missed out. So I think everyone can just pick out one driver who was a near miss and maybe initially under consideration, but didn't quite make it in and explain a little bit why. So we'll come to you first, Mark. Who have you picked? I picked uh, Sergio Perez. He was just too far away from Max and, and way too often he, he, he qualified behind slower cars and a Red Bull. And I don't think anyone was expecting him to be able to take it to Verstappen in qualifying and to be a threat to him. I don't think even Checo, I think even Checo realised his role there was a, a one of support. 
but he was surprised at just how big the difference was. It was a tricky car, especially in the early phase of the season when he was trying to stay with Verstappen's setup. Um, he did a good job at Baku, where he won, won of course. So he was there to pick up the pieces when Max's tyre went pop. And he'd stayed close enough to Hamilton and Verstappen in that first stint that he could use his better tyre usage to overcut Hamilton at the stops, and that was crucial. Um, and that's the sort of job that would have been reasonable to expect of him. And I think that's the sort of level they were expecting to get from him pretty much you know, every race once he settled in. But it turned out that was a rare hi- highlight. He, he made a bit of progress as he sort of went his own way on setup, but then it fell, it fell away again. Um, so he, he was only occasionally close enough to be able to be used in tactical support of Verstappen's races. And usually by the time he'd fought his way past cars, he should never have qualified behind. He was too far behind to be of any use. So... There were some great highlights. I mean, Abu Dhabi in that last race and delaying Hamilton and not get—he's not scared to get stuck in. He's a great racer. Um, he's a better racer than, for example, Valtteri. But on the other hand, he's not as fast over one lap and, and never has been. And um, I recall last year I was being asked why I only had him down at number eight or number nine or something, and everybody else was saying he was top five because he had a great season. But for me, he was never top five or anywhere near it. Last year's racing point was a really good car, and he raced it well as all. Well, and I, I'm convinced that last year's racing point was just as fast as last year's Red Bull, and the only difference there really was the, the, the difference between Max and Checo, and we've seen that now this year with them in the same team. So a bit hard on him maybe to leave him out, but um, not unfair, I don't feel. I think he only partially fulfilled his brief. Yeah, I think he can be a very good number two there and probably will be stronger next year, but yeah, it wasn't quite there. Comparing him to Bottas, I think he was not far off twice the the average qualifying deficit, him to Max, compared to Bottas to Hamilton. So that kind of puts in place where the uh, pace difference is. Corinne, who would you like to talk about? I'm going to go with Sebastian Vettel. Um, I think he's come off the back of, you know, poor couple of seasons at Ferrari, particularly 2020 was, you know, really substandard by his by his career standards. Um, but he seemed to, you know, find a... a a happy home at Aston, a new lease of life. Um, you know, delivered some good results, some good races, some good points. I don't think the car was particularly competitive. You know, converse to last year, as Mark has just highlighted, where I think the racing point was an excellent car in 2020. You know, the floor changes do seem to have hurt them, and they never really got on top of that in the way that Mercedes did. So um, I think Vettel settled in fine. He's he's offered a degree of leadership. To that team uh, and experience still made a few errors which you know like Silverstone for example by his own um, own judgment were, were just um, not good enough you know and he, he in fact it was funny to, to hear him say it on the team radio on the slowing down lap in Abu Dhabi um, that he made a few too many errors but yeah on the whole I thought um, it was a decent way for him to rebuild life after Ferrari. Yeah, some good peaks for Vettel and interested to see how that goes next year. I'm going to pick out Daniel Ricciardo, obviously winner of the Italian Grand Prix first season with McLaren. He did make good progress through the year, but ultimately, even at the end of the year, when actually on paper the the race results were a bit better than that of Lando Norris, that was more often than not just a consequence of, of Norris's bad luck, actually. So I don't feel Ricciardo quite made enough of a step through the year to, to get himself into the list. He's still a fantastically good driver and I'm expecting much better next year but his struggles to adapt to the very specific demands of that car to get the braking and corner entry phase right and get the car rotated enough so he wasn't limited on corner exit I think has has been the story of the season for him he's worked hard he's learned a lot and I think he's he's shown himself kind of equal to that task but it just hasn't quite come together and this is probably the, the weakest season Ricardo's had in terms of getting the most out of what was under him. Certainly since Toro Rosso days, you'd, you'd have to argue. There'll be more next year, but yeah, Lando Norris was comfortably the stronger McLaren driver. And although Ricardo was kind of on my notional list of people for the top 10 initially of 12 or 13 drivers, it was fairly easy in the end to, to leave him out. But I'm sure he'll be a, a strong contender next year. Well, those are some of the drivers who just missed out, but we're going to get into the key drivers in the top 10. Mark, Let's start with Valtteri Bottas. I was going to throw this to Scott if he was here because he's the guardian of Valtteri Bottas' sympathy corner. Bottas finished third in the championship. He won the Turkish Grand Prix. So why all the way down in 10th place? Well, I just think that um, his his season was too patchy, really, to to be uh, considered to be top, sort of top five level. Um, his peaks were 
as good as I've ever been. Um, and he's very, very fast over a single lap when he gets everything right. But um, yeah, I mean, his, his season was sort of in three phases, wasn't it? It was the initial, he started reasonably strongly. Um, and we had a few of those weekends where he's ooh, nearly on Lewis's pace. And, and then it just sort of, you know, it, it sort of snowballs a little bit and he just loses control of the weekend and all before you know it he's 30 seconds behind at the end of the race and then there was a phase where he was just seemed to lose all confidence and was just you know just not delivering at all and and then he, coinciding with um the announcement that he wouldn't be re-signing with mercedes and had got a three-year deal with alpha um he suddenly started delivering really really strong performances towards the end of the year again so yeah i mean that's not that's not the the level of a a top five driver. That's um, that's somebody that can do it on the day, but um, just you know, he's, he's he's been there against being measured against greatness in Lewis, you know, for for all those years, and has come back time and time again at the beginning of each new season, trying to figure out a, a, a different way of, of trying to beat them, of trying to compete with them because it didn't work properly last time, and he's got close now and again, but. It takes it out of you, I'm sure. That just that relentless pummeling is just, and I think this is what we've seen. We've seen that and the combination of he's never felt that he has a long-term secure place there. I think that's probably he's probably needed that. Some some drivers respond well to that, some don't, and I think he doesn't. Um, so yeah, just consistency, really. Um, that's that's why he's in tenth. Yeah, I got the feeling that that whole upturn in performance once his future was settled did reflect the fact that the uncertainty. And just that the the weight of those years of battling Hamilton counted against him. But on the whole thing of not getting the long-term deal, if he performed compellingly enough to get the long-term deal, he'd have got the long-term deal. So again, while it's easy to say, well, if the team had given him a five-year deal or something, he'd have been at Monza level all the time. I think it doesn't uh, doesn't quite work like that. Where did you have uh, Valtteri, Karim? Uh, well, this is one that I agree with you guys. Uh, I had him as number 10. The only reason I edged him in ahead of um, Perez and Vettel is that I think there were enough occasions this year where he was close enough to Max for it to be a strategic nuisance for Red Bull to not just do whatever they wanted. Um, but, you know, we had races like Sochi where he just drove around in sort of 14th place until the rain came down. Um, Qatar, again, wasn't particularly strong there. Uh, go back all the way to Imola, which obviously ended in that crash with his replacement, George Russell, but he shouldn't have been down fighting with George Russell in the first place, you know, in a Mercedes. So with all due respect to George and Williams. So, yeah, I, 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 on the whole, I don't think it was Valtteri's strongest Mercedes year even. Um, and I think Mercedes have done the right thing by going for Toto. So, yeah, moving on to number nine, Ed, because we, uh, we agree. Yeah, with number nine, we had, uh, we had Esteban Ocon. Uh, in our rankings, uh, obviously one in Hungary, stacked up well against his Alpine teammate Fernando Alonso. So, as you said, Karun, it pretty much uh, matched our our estimation. Good season for Ocon, wasn't it? It did reignite his F1 career, you could almost say. Yeah, no, good season for Ocon. Um, I had him as 11-10 ahead of Alonso in qualifying, an average time gap across the season, remarkably close, only 22 thousandths of a second across uh, all the qualifying sessions. That you can count, not including, for example, the wet one at Spa and things like that. Um, so, yeah, very, very strong season for him against Alonso, who admittedly, I think, took a few races to settle in, but then found his stride from sort of round five, round six, I think, Baku onwards. Um, but on the whole, a very, very uh, solid year for Ocon. You know, you have to bear in mind, um, as a driver who was, you know, on the sidelines for a little bit, came back against Ricardo, was there or thereabouts. I thought this year against Alonso would be a big challenge for him mentally because we've seen with Stoffel, we've seen with other teammates before that Fernando is mentally just sort of destroys his teammates. And I don't think Alcon, um, you know, was faced by that. He rose to the challenge well and, and did a very good job. So I had him as number nine as well. Mark, what did you make of that performance swing that we saw throughout the year between Alonso and Ocon. Quite different driving styles between those two. Ocon, a slightly more classical driving style, you would say. Alonso, a great improviser, a hustler of a car. Do you think that explains why we sometimes saw one doing better than the other, or do you think it was just the normal 
swings within the error bars, given they were quite evenly matched. Yeah, I think I think both of those things. I think it was um, close enough match that just you know one um, slightly set of favourable circumstances for one would would, would have swung it that that particular weekend. Um, yeah, I think if you look at the pattern of performance, it's in Ocon's favour in the first half of the season, generally with some exceptions, and in Alonso's favour in the second half of the season, again with with some exceptions. And um, I, yeah, so I think Alonso. As Karun said, it took maybe five or six races to really get, you know, the the, the fine honed feel for both the his Formula One return and and that car in particular. And it was a, it was an odd car, it had some odd traits. It didn't always make sense to, um, to the drivers why it was good and, and why it wasn't. But um, yeah, I think uh, Esteban he, he came in on an absolute mission. That, Alonso wasn't going to just take over and this, he was going to be strong enough to, um, you know, to, to see off that challenge. And I don't think he, he was expecting to be able to dominate Fernando, but he was, he went in absolutely determined that he wasn't going to let Fernando take this team from him. And actually he's pretty tough. He's mentally tough character. He always has been. And, um, I think actually they ended up, um, getting on quite well because I think in the situation that they were in, um, they realized they're quite similar in, in, in some ways in their, their personalities. I think the situation they were in, they realized that they could um, work, work together to try and bring the whole thing up. It'd be interesting to see if the car is quick, um, if, if they can remain as effective a, a partnership as they were this year. Yeah, it's interesting that dynamic has worked very, very well. And of course, Esteban Ocon, when he won in Hungary, Fernando Alonso played a big part in ensuring that that victory was was possible. And then in Brazil, they were working together to try and keep Gasly behind. And yeah, it, it seems to be the most friendly teammate relationship Alonso's had in Formula One, you'd, you'd have to say. So we'll see how that goes in the future. But certainly it worked for Alpine. I think the thing I liked most about Ocon this year is there were little spells when it looked like Alonso was getting on top of him. But every time Ocon was able to kind of hit back, get back to that level, and, and overall in the final reckoning, they ended up at, at relatively similar sorts of levels. So, yeah, good strong lineup there for, for Alpine that's worked very well. Let's move on to Pierre Gasly in eighth, Mark. Now, we had quite a bit of criticism from readers of the race.com for this ranking, with many arguing he should be higher. So, what did you make of his season and why is he down in eighth place rather than, as some argued, up third, fourth, fifth? Um, I put him there because I think he wasn't quite as good as those ahead of him, but better than those behind him. <laughs> I completely disagree. I'm with the readers. I can't believe you guys put him so low. I have him as P6, by the way, for the record. Anyway, it's so all like we're, we're different by one position. Yeah, so, two, two. Where where have I got him? Oh, I think uh, yeah. So we're talking. This, yeah, there's, there's our list, our individual list, and there's a combined list. So I think I had him at um, seven. Um, but does he have the combination of the super sharp intelligence and paces, Carlos Sainz? No, I don't think he has quite. Is he? He's very quick, but is he as quick over a lap as Leclerc? No, I don't think he is. Has he got the amazing racecraft of Alonso? No, I don't think so. Not quite. Does he have the all-round staggering ability on every level as Hamilton and Verstappen? No, I don't think so. And I think if he was back in Red Bull alongside Max, he'd still struggle, or probably less so than last time doesn't mean he can't still improve. And he's done a better, more consistent job than either Bottas or Perez, I think. Um, his all-out speed's probably been more consistent than Ocon's um, even, but he's usually got the most out of what was a really nice car in qualifying. But there are a few weekends that got away from him and a few scrappy incidents. But in all, I'd say a really positive season, but not one to me that says certified solid gold superstar. And the fact that he bounced back so hard in the last couple of seasons after that Red Bull experience shows a massive strength of character. And I think it would have been easy for him to have sunk without trace, sort of like Daniel Kvyat did, for example. But um, yeah, I think he'd had a good season, but um, for me, not 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 quite at superstar level yet. Yeah, I think before we let Karun take us to task on this, I'll just add one of the things that's interesting about Gasly is, you know, watch his qualifying laps. Some of them have been really mighty, but they have there are sort of ones where you look at and you think, oh, there's a tenth or two that's got away from you there. So I, I kind of tend to agree. I think Gasly's a really good driver amazing the way he's rebuilt his career he works really well with that team and to have him as the eighth best driver in formula one is hardly uh, a criticism you know that's still a pretty mighty level of uh, level of performance but yeah I, I just yeah he just didn't quite have those little those little extra moments of magic that some of the other drivers 
had very 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 good but just yeah just just didn't didn't quite get to the level of uh, of some of the drivers who were uh, who, who were above him in the list so Karin, you can now tell us why we're utterly wrong I just think he you know the qualifying performances he put together this year were sensational yeah I agree races like Bahrain and Monza he he obviously didn't capitalize on those great qualifying positions with with I don't want to call them mistakes, but let's say misjudgments uh, when it comes to racing wheel to wheel and knock his front wing off in both cases. But you know, races like Mexico, he was he was incredibly consistent and strong. Uh, Zandvoort just sort of went under the radar, but qualified fourth, finished fourth. I, I think there were a lot of really really strong performances, and I think you also have to factor in the midfield once again, like we had last year, was very very close. And really, for a huge part of that season, he didn't have a teammate as reference. You know, they go to a race weekend um, with, you know, the practice sessions and, and a whole load of stuff to to understand and learn. And he was kind of doing it himself. You know, Sonoda got, started to get it together from Turkey onwards. But, you know, the first 15 races of the year, I think Gasly was having to do a lot of the donkey work himself. And, and that can't be underestimated. And... Ultimately, I think he had very good feel when it came to extracting the last bit of grip out of the new tyres for, for qualifying and, and delivered um, those quali laps. So, yeah, on the whole, I thought he had a, an extremely strong season and uh, I had him P6 ahead of Alonso and Russell. Yeah, you can certainly make a case for it. And I have to say the the gap between these drivers is quite small when you're looking at it. So it often depends on exactly where you where you set your judgments by, I, I guess you, you could say. So Gasly, whatever happens, he's a he's a proven high quality Grand Prix driver and I would like to see him in an even better car again in the future to see how he fares, because I'm sure it would work better than it did for him at Red Bull in twenty nineteen. Well, next up we've got Fernando Alonso, seventh place. The third place in Qatar was his highlight. He's quickly proved that after two years out of F one that hadn't blunted his driving at all. So how did you rate his season? I, I thought it was a very good return um, to Formula 1 for Fernando. I think, as I said before, it took him a few races to settle in. Certainly races like Imola, he really didn't seem to be enjoying it and didn't seem hooked up. Um, but as the season progressed, we started to see that aggression come back in the driving style. You know, I think early on in the season... There was, there was this sort of hesitancy and this tentativeness with the way he would, you know, attack the corner entries. And that's not his style. And, and I think it took a little while for the team to kind of dial the car in for him. He, he started off very strong, obviously, in Bahrain. But I think it's a little bit of a false dawn because we had the t- preseason testing there. Um, but once he hit his stride, he was, you know, the Fernando of old, I thought, started to come back out, you know. When it came to lap one, that Qatar opening lap was sensational. Absolutely sensational. It was like Fernando Barcelona 2012 or whatever when he went, you know, sailing past everyone. So he still looks fit, motivated, pumped up, uh, ready for it. I don't think the team, in fact, are. they seem to have sort of stagnated a little bit in that midfield pack. I don't. You know, I'm not seeing any real signs that they're ready to join the top three for next season. So I'll be interested to see what his motivation is like, if that's the case. But on the whole, I thought, um, you know, if you look at Michael coming back after sabbatical, Kimi coming back after sabbatical, you know, those drivers have gone on and come back. It's not the easiest thing to do. But uh, I thought Fernando did a, a very, very good job this year. We're looking forward to how you get on when you come back from your F1 sabbatical, Karine. It's been going on a bit long now. I know, I know. I do need to get it sorted for next year, really. <laughs> if you've got 10 million in the bank account, you might have a, you might have a shot at uh, getting 10 in, million? But... I, th- I think 10 million nowadays gets you a couple of Fridays, doesn't it? After the uh, the recent signings at, <laughs> at Alpha and things like that. Yeah, that's that's a that's a point. You you made the mistake of not being the son of a billionaire. That's uh, that's that's the, that's the big error. Yeah, there we go. But the thing I liked about Alonso, some of the standout performances, and I can relate this back to the Gasly one, when Alonso had a number of things where he just did a- astonishing things. The hungry defense against Hamilton, he held Hamilton for eleven laps, and basically for those eleven laps, Hamilton did not catch Ocon at all. Without Alonso doing that, then. 
Ocon does not win that race. Qatar as well, where he absolutely maximised that, just kept himself out of reach in third place. So I think we saw a little bit of that from Alonso, plus things like what he did at the start at Sochi. He'd been complaining about people using the runoff on first laps. Nobody had really listened to him and uh, taken action, so he decided to kind of go one step beyond with it. And actually, he was perfectly entitled to do so. What he did was not really correct, but in the context, it was correct. So I just like the fact that it's still the the old Alonso finding ways to A, gain an advantage, and B, make a point, and C, pretend it's all just uh, just one of those things. And people are, people are stirring things up when they talk about it. So that, that's one of the things that I think elevated Alonso. What did you think of him, Mark? I loved that what he did it, um, on the on the warm up lap at Sochi, and I, the fact that he telegraphed it on the um, on the out lap as well. He said, "Look, look what I've just done," and and then then did it again, <laughs> just to just to really make sure in case you hadn't noticed the first time. Um, yeah, uh, he was. Uh, I, I thought pretty much vintage Alonso in the second half of the season, tailed off the last couple of races, but I think there was a problem with the car in um, Abu Dhabi. They they, they had. Um, some sort of rear end problem that was discovered afterwards. So I think we discount that one. But generally, yeah, second half of the season, he was terrific. And like uh, Karun, I so enjoyed that first lap at Qatar. It was fantastic. And, um, you know, the, the car's absolutely on the edge of the co- of control as he goes around the outside of Gasly, turn two, I think it was. And, uh, you, you know, even Verstappen had to get onto the grass to get out of the way because he, he almost got involved in it. And then, uh, yeah, he just sort of kept that, that that relentless pace up that he was always so good at um, and he's always very good with the tyres and he always understands exactly how the race is and you hear him sort of uh, ask, asking on the radio where are we in re- relation to and where's the gap and all all those things. He's just like super attuned just like he'd, he'd never been away. So, yeah, I think um, if you took a, just a, like a snapshot of the end of the season performance, I'd, yeah, I'd, have, I'd have him a lot higher up than I have. But if you just say as an average, because you know as we've been talking about, it took him a while to to dial fully in. Yeah, I think you think we've got him in about the right place. Yeah, it'd be great if that Alpine is very competitive next year, and we can see Alonso fighting at the front again. That's something everybody will enjoy seeing happen. Let's move on to George Russell next. Some great moments for the Williams driver, including second on the grid at Spa and a haul of 23 points. Interestingly, I actually think he's the driver in the top 10 for the race that had the biggest variation in ranking among the four of us, depending on exactly how how we set it. So, Mark, Russell's season, I mean, it was pretty remarkable given the machinery, wasn't it? Yeah. I mean, he's um, in the ninth fastest of 10 cars. And yeah, that that car was a little bit variable in that. If the conditions were right, it it was a bit better than the ninth best car. But even so, with that car, he's um, he's got one front row, he's got one second row, and he's got another Q three as well. It's Silverstone. They're just extraordinary performances. They're the sort of performances you see when you put a world championship caliber driver in a you know back of the grid car. People often say it'd be fascinating to see what such and such would do in a. You know, and we've we'll, we'll just seen it. That's, and I think we'll understand that in hindsight once you know he gets. We 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 get to see him perform in the Mercedes. Um, those those peaks are just extraordinary, and and they were beyond what what you know should have been feasible. Um, now, yeah, usually he was stuck trying to get out of Q one, maybe just making it. But that, that was about the level of the car, and it was a very, very peaky car, and there were, there were very specific technical reasons why it was so, and it's to do with the way that William did, decided to configure the car. They'd, they'd figured that they'd rather have a car that was fast sometimes than mediocre all the time, So even if it meant it was patchy. So that I think when you're seeing um, George's, you're saying, well, if you can get it on the front row there or you can get it on the second row in Sochi, why, why is he? Why is he struggling to get it out of Q1? Well, that's that's just a car thing. I don't think that's a Russell thing. Um, and I just, yeah, I, I think he's he's delivering consistently extraordinary performances. And I think um, it's just disguised by um, the, how patchily the, the car performs. Yeah, and I think we will see that prove next year, assuming the Mercedes is as strong as we expect it to be. We've seen him once in in the Mercedes, and he did all but win the Sakir Grand Prix in 2020 in that car that he didn't was not his fault. 
but this year, yeah, some extraordinary performances. I think the only the only difficulty in evaluating him is because that Mercedes that because that Williams form was so erratic, because the car was so peaky, it, it makes it harder to judge. But the other thing was this is one of the things that made the big difference between him and Latifi. When the car was not at its absolute best, but kind of in the middle, there were times when it would be good over X number of corners around a lap, but might be a nightmare and having little aero stalls in other ones. And Russell was really good at hanging onto it in the difficult corners and driving within it and then nailing it in the ones that were good. So he's very good at piecing together laps in, in that regard. What did you make of him, Curry? Yeah, I thought it was a, a really strong season. I think that Silverstone qualifying that Mark mentioned there, the, the Q2 lap was one of my highlights of the season, really. Uh, you know, just uh, they looked completely nowhere in the morning free practice session, the only practice session before qualifying. And, um, but he dug it out and it, it was, it was very, very impressive. I think the Spa qualifying lap was uh, an obvious other, you know, flashpoint of the season, which was sensational. Um, and actually, you know, I think he only got stuck in Q1 on four occasions this year, wasn't it? Most of the time he, he did get out of Q1. So um, there are a couple of races towards the end, Brazil and I think Abu Dhabi. He got out-qualified by Latifi, but on the whole, uh, fully, fully deserving of that top ride at Mercedes next year. And, you know, I'm very excited to see how that's going to play. I think, you know, we're all excited and looking forward to... Are Ferrari going to be stronger next year? What are the new rules going to be like, et cetera, et cetera. But actually, the thing I'm most looking forward to is George versus Lewis at Mercedes. I- I'm really intrigued to yeah. see how they get on. Yeah, and the best thing about Russell is he will go into Mercedes absolutely wanting to establish himself over and above Lewis Hamilton. Because although he he's a good team player, you know, he's an intelligent, very polished character... I think the thing I really like about Russell is he's got that underlying steel that you need to see in a top-line driver. It remains to be seen how he'll do over a full season in a top car. I think he'll do well, but you never really know until a driver is subjected to all those pressures. But yeah, I think Russell will be very interesting next year. And he had enough what you might call miracle performances this year to show that he's something something very, very special. Let's move on to... What actually proved to be the most contentious thing about our top 10, slightly unexpectedly. So, Mark, we're going to put P5 and P4 in our list together because it's Ferrari teammates, Carlos Sainz and Charles Leclerc. We have Leclerc fourth and Sainz fifth. Plenty of readers challenged that view given Sainz nipped ahead of Leclerc in the standings at the end of the season. So why Leclerc ahead? Look, I'm a big, big fan of Carlos Sainz. I think he's terrific. But in a sign in the top 10, I think maybe the readers are looking at it differently. They're saying, when you take into account the fact that it was his first year, yeah, okay, sure, fine. But my assessment, what I'm sort of looking at is purely what level did I think they reached? Not with any adjustments, just what level did they reach? Um, and, and did Carlos, as an average over the season, reach the same level of performance as Charles? No, he didn't, I don't think, not quite. And I... I think Carlos would agree with that. In fact, I know he does because I chatted to him about it and it bugs him that he'll, and he'll, he'll be working on putting that right. Um, in the races where a fair comparison was possible, I've got Charlotte um, 10-5 up in qualifying, but the average is only about a tenth, very small margins. But the significant point is that he was so close to someone as freakishly fast of a one lap as Leclerc. And he found out, he found a way to compete with them. And... He was definitely getting closer as the season progressed to the extent, I think, in three of the last four, he was actually quicker. So you take a snapshot at the end of the season and you can make a case for putting Carlos ahead even. But as an average of the season, no, no, I don't quite. Um, He scored half a point more, but points don't really mean anything to drivers unless they're fighting for a championship, but it's circumstantial. It's really all about performance. And Leclerc several times put that Ferrari in grid position which massively flattered it and delivered the sort of speed you'd expect to see from that level of car if uh, Verstappen or Hamilton were driving it but Charles and Carlos they pushed each other in such a positive way and only a couple of times did they get a little terse little tense between them they they worked so hard both of them you, you talk to the Ferrari people and the, the amount of work they're putting in on the simulator those two and the, the, the how motivated they are to do it and the, the way they feel the cars sufficiently different I think that it gives the team a sort of triangulation point in, in working out where they are and what they need and you, and you talk to each of them after a practice session it's fascinating the different ways I have explaining the dynamics of the car Charles more instinctual 
um, Carlos is super analytical and, and quite often able to offer an insight you wouldn't necessarily get from Charles. And I think that ends up for the engineers. I think that's pulling them forward. I think it's, it's pulling both drivers forward and often Charles then delivering the big lap. So, uh, yeah, fantastically um, closely matched driver pairing and um, very complementary to each other. Um, but, uh, yeah, on that first season together, I'd put Charles marginally ahead. I've got it the other way around because I think you have to factor in that Charles, you know, Charles was the incumbent at Ferrari. He was the golden child coming into the season, the one who basically packed off Sebastian Vettel to Aston Martin. Um, and he's there for the long term, you know, could be could be there for life. He, he is the golden child. And Carlos has walked into that and massively stepped up to the challenge. Did he make errors? Absolutely qualifying in uh, Budapest, the FP3 crash in Monza. So, you know, absolutely he made errors. But I think the fact that he ended the season slightly behind Charles on the team score and qualifying, um, I think 11-9 in Leclerc's favour. But actually, when you look at the time, only 0 0.050, only five hundredths between them, shows how evenly matched they were. And I, I think if you look at the long term, You'd have to say that Ferrari, in my opinion, have got the best driver lineup. If you if you're looking at the next three four years, they are two young, hungry, motivated drivers, desperate to be in a position to fight for the world championship, and they seem to have a similar driving style. You know, there were quite a few occasions where the cars qualified next to each other, and which sort of tells me that when when the cars working in that sort of circuit, both drivers are extracting similar performance out of it. Um, I think there were certainly some higher highs for Leclerc, uh, Silverstone race, for example, where after the Lewis Max crash, you know, he, he really seized the initiative and drove a superb race. Lewis got him at the end, but even the fact that he was in that position says a lot. He, you know, he comprehensively beat Bottas, for example, in a straight fight. Uh, so uh, I think there were some higher highs for, for Leclerc. But equally, Carlos delivered in a very consistent way, which Ferrari needed. They, they needed to have a driver come along who just gets on with the job, gets on with Charles and pushes them forward and reached out. And he's proved to be that person. So for me, the fact that it was his first season at Ferrari, you look at the struggles that Daniel has had going to McLaren, you look at the challenge even Alonso had coming into you know, Alpine, shows it's not easy to be switching teams. Uh, and just for that reason, I had Carlos ahead of Charles. Yeah, I think it comes down to what emphasis you put on different factors. For me, the the clincher in favour of Leclerc was simply that he was just ahead on the, the key performance metrics, even though the, the trend was very, very good for science. I think it's going to be really interesting next season because science is absolutely going to start the year thinking he can be ahead and then there'll be no doubt about which Ferrari driver should be ahead in our list. But Leclerc had those two pole positions as well. Yeah, okay, he crashed on his way to his pole in, in Monaco. And he, and he had a lot of very good weekends that are easy to forget. You know, Bahrain, Imola, Spain, Baku was very strong. Ones where he didn't necessarily get the the, the podium finish, which Science did get uh, get a few more times. But just, you know, re these really strong fourth and fifth place kind of results that he, he had a knack of, of producing. But yeah, it would have been a different rating perhaps if, if you ignored the first half of the season. So I, I always try and work to factor in the whole thing and then then it becomes a question of what you emphasize in terms of the in terms of the trajectory. But because this is an interesting topic, well what what do you see happening there next season? Do you think that we are seeing science on a, on an upward trajectory that means he could just cross over Leclerc's level or do you think that it will just continue to be a thing of these two drivers pushing each other on and because they have those complementary skills just get both getting better yeah i think that i think um, they'll both be at an extremely high level and you know which which one it's in favor of will just be the circumstances of the weekend and, and how they hit the ground but um yeah I, I don't see one of them establishing dominance over the other yeah it's going to be very un, un, unlikely Karine, what what do you think is going to be happening there do you think if you were Charles Leclerc you'd be a little bit worried about what science is doing and think right i need to hit the ground running next year to maintain my kind of de facto number one status, because even though it's never been 
vocalised by Ferrari. He is the guy with the long-term deal. He is the one who is earmarked as the future of Ferrari. And I think they signed Sainz as a bit of a support act, but got more than they bargained for. I don't think he's looking at it purely from Sainz's perspective. I, I think, you know, he's still young enough. Yes, he's won races, but he hasn't been in a position to fight for the championship. And I think that's what they're hoping for. I think, you know, at this stage, all they're focusing on is is extracting the maximum from it. I don't think they're just necessarily benchmarking each other. I think they are looking at the wider field. I don't feel that there's an edge there uh, in terms of of the teammate rivalry. Now, if, let's say, we get to four months from now and Ferrari arrive at, at the first race in Bahrain with a car ready to fight for race wins in the championship, that may well change. <laughs> don't get me wrong. I think as soon as the pressure of a title battle comes in, then all of a sudden friendly relations between teammates goes away. Just look at Fernando and Lewis, 2007. They arrived at pre-season testing relatively friendly and it all very rapidly changed at the first corner in Melbourne. So let's see, let's see. But I, I don't think um, Leclerc's pure motivation at this stage of his career is to beat Sainz. I think his motivation is to try and fight for the World Championship and be in that position one day. The bottom line is with those two, they were both operating at a very high level and in the final rankings, they, they were pretty similar, which is, is good news for Ferrari. I think there's no doubt if they've got a, a car capable of winning the championship, that, that lineup's going to very likely deliver you a Constructors' Championship, isn't it? Which is a, a huge boost for Ferrari. Third place, Lando Norris, Mark. Now, this was questioned again by some readers because obviously on paper, his results in the back end of the year were nothing that special. So so why so high for Norris? Um, I think the, it's more circumstantial. The, the, the second half of the year, A, Ferrari improved significantly once they got that new power unit. And B, there were several races that just um, didn't didn't play out for McLaren, um, but it wasn't uh, due to driver error. Uh, I think Lando was um, probably... Um, batting above the, the car's level for a lot of the time. It's an unusual car by all accounts, according to both Daniel and, and Carlos, you know, which is related to last year's car. Um, it required very specific things from the driver, and uh, Lando was just so on top of it. And he delivered some astonishing laps. I think the, um, although he, you know, he set that pole at Sochi, which was great, and uh, he, he was up there in Monza too. Um, for me, the what the... the, the one of the laps of the season, the qualifying laps of the season, was at the second Austria, where he qualified within a you know few hundredths of Verstappen's pole. And I remember um, standing with Karun, looking at his big screen, um, and as he was you know rewinding it and fast forwarding it, and just what he was doing at that penultimate corner where the big sausage curbs are, he was using the is using the curbs to to arrest the car. Um, from the slide that it in, you know he'd induced by going in so fast, but without ever going over it, and it was just extraordinary what he's doing. It was acrobatic, and I think you know that that lap time had you know uh, a higher percentage of uh, driver input in it than uh, probably than any other on the on the grid. It was an extraordinary lap. Um, but in Sochi, you know, when he he set that pole and he was going to win his first Grand Prix. He had he had Lewis under control until the, the rain shower came and he had he was faced with that awful decision of what to do about tyres. Um, Lewis wasn't going to find a way back. I don't think Lewis had th- thought that he was going to either. He, he caught up with him, but that that was it. So uh, you know he was going to he was going to deliver a, a McLaren victory from pole against the Mercedes, and I think that's you know pretty special. And I think um, if 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 we get him in a, a McLaren, it's uh, consistently uh, that that good, then I think you will be delivering races like that weekend in, weekend out. And we have to remember things like Spa, where he was stunningly quick in the wet qualifying there. Yes, he had the crash, but the consensus among drivers was that the session was too wet to have started and someone was going to have that. He just happened to be one of the first, if not the first, through there. So, yeah, that that happens. And even the, the criticism he had in Russia, I had quite a close look at the times. And actually, based on the grip level available to him. I don't, I don't think he was in the wrong there. The, the thing that was missed was McLaren not noticing there was a second bank of rain immediately behind, and they didn't overrule him. Mercedes overruled Hamilton because Hamilton was making the same call, but 
the drivers don't have the weather forecast unless the team tells them. So I think, yeah, that it's very difficult to, to blame Norris for, for that particular one. And just so many of these high-quality performances. And back end of the year, a couple of punches late on cost him some big results. Yes, he had the mistake at the start at Interlagos when he hit Sainz. That was his fault. But Abu Dhabi, everything went against him there. Qatar, the puncher, went against him. He had... Obviously, there's a power unit change, uh, one of the later races as well, that cost him. So I, I think probably more than any other driver, his results were distorted towards the end of the season. I, I think also you go back all the way to Imola, right? He, you know, the, the quality lap he did there was, I think, as good as the one he delivered in Austria, apart from the fact that he was a few centimetres over the white line at, at um, was it Ravazza that he went it's right Ravazza, yeah. Yeah, and uh, yeah, I thought that was that was honestly one of the best quality laps of yeah. the season, apart from that little little misjudgment. Um, yeah, he, he just delivered at a consistently high level, and that's that's what a team leader should be doing. I think what made it all the more impressive is obviously we all expected going into the season, or certainly let's say back in the last year when uh, Ricardo was signed that Daniel would be the number one. Daniel was delivering at a very high level at Renault last season, uh, some extremely strong qualifying and race performances. And we thought, okay, he's going to go to McLaren and he's going to be the number one. And that's going to be a big challenge for Lando. And it became very clear very quickly that Lando, I think, was a different character. I think he arrived this season with a different mindset. Gone was the sort of, you know, childish, jokey manner. Yeah, he's still a great character and he still speaks his mind and he's still, um, you know, he, he he's still got that youthful exuberance, shall we say, uh, and enthusiasm. But there's a, there's a more serious side to Lando, I think, this year. I think there's a slightly, there's a more um, methodical driver in the way that he's working with the engineers. I think he's got a very good relationship with uh, Will Joseph and Jose, his two closest engineers, uh, race and performance. And I think that little mini team of the three of them that they've built uh, is working so, so well that he, you know, he's unquestionably stepped up to being the, the team leader at McLaren very early on. And I'm fascinated to see where the new McLaren is next year. I think they will be hurt by the fact that the, the wind tunnel isn't going to be ready. Obviously, it got delayed by, I think, about a year mark. Is that right? The yeah, wind tunnel, yeah. they had to stop. So, you know, we're not going to see the result from there till probably 24, really. So, yeah. But either way, I think McLaren are in much, much better shape than they were two or three years ago. Yeah, ultimately, for me, Norris came into the season having proved he was a, a good Grand Prix driver. I think in our top 10s, he'd been loitering around the kind of eighth-ish place the past couple of years. But he really took that step forward. And I think also it was important for him to prove to himself he can do it. There, there tend to be two types of mentality. I'm, I'm painting in very broad brushstrokes here. But you have these guys like Verstappen, Schumacher, Senna, the ones who've got Hamilton as well. Absolute certainty that they're, they're brilliant. They know how good they are. Norris... I think we've seen signs he had a little bit more self-doubt at times, but each season's been kind of a process of him convincing himself. And I think now he knows he can be even more than just a good Grand Prix driver. And, and that's what we saw on track this year. And I think even with the disappointments late in the year, he could take those on the chin a little bit more easily. Yeah, he was frustrated, but he knew that it was just external circumstances going against him. So yeah, fascinating to see how Norris does next year and if he can take yet another step. Well, now we've come down to the final two, who we are going to talk about together. No surprise, the identity of the two drivers at the top two. They're the pair who've been first and second in 15 Grand Prix during 2021. Lewis Hamilton and Max Verstappen. At the race, we had Hamilton P2, Verstappen P1. Extremely close, but I think actually we were all we, we were unanimous, weren't we, in putting Verstappen ahead of Lewis Hamilton. Uh, you as well had him there. So let's drill down into what did Verstappen do better or very, very, very slightly better than Hamilton? I just think if you look at the season on the whole, he made 
less, I don't want to call mistakes, but he had less off weekends. You know, Lewis, Monaco was a subpar weekend. Baku had the opportunity to win um, after Max's puncture and, and made that error at the start. Imola, I know it didn't cost him points, but it he got so, so lucky. It was such a get-out-of-jail card for him that the race was red flagged at that point because he had spent, I don't know, probably half a lap, more than half a lap, sitting in the gravel and then trying to reverse out. So he, he, he you know, arguably, in the same way that, and this is the funny thing, right, this week, you know, we can all talk about the luck Max had in Abu Dhabi with getting that red flag with Latifi's crash, but Lewis had that at Imola. It's just that it was so many months ago, we sort of, forgotten it really um, and he ended up second that day so whereas for Max you know in 18 of the races basically every race he finished he was either first or second <laughs> that is just an unbelievable level of consistently high performances um, you know the four races were, that he didn't were were the two crashes controversial Silverstone and Monza one his fault one not and then obviously Budapest, where he got hit by the Valtteri Bottas bowling ball and then Baku, the tyre failure. So whenever he finished, he was either first or second. I just think that is, for me, that was the metric that put him ahead of Lewis. I basically uh, agree with that. I think, yeah, the low points are an important thing. And you mentioned the Baku mistake. That wasn't a driving mistake, but it was an operational mistake. Ultimately, that's still on the driver. He hit the brake magic button that was on the, the rear, I think the rear left side of the steering wheel so yeah still still an error that that made a, a a difference and i think it is important when you're looking at these top 10s to try and overcome the the recency bias and look over the whole season i have the uh well it's both a fortune and a misfortune to do the driver ratings after each race which are always uh popular and everyone always agrees and is very polite about their their disagreement where they where they don't but that is quite a useful thing to get a measure of the consistency and just to try and even up the season and yeah, the way the season ended was was ridiculous. Regardless of whether you're pro Hamilton, pro Verstappen, or neutral, the way the Abu Dhabi Grand Prix finish was handled was wrong and deeply problematic. But even before the race, obviously, I, I, I was minded to have Verstappen ahead. There was always a potential it could shift depending on what what happens. But it's not just a question of he won the championship, therefore he's he's ahead. I think over the balance of the year just that tiny little bit uh, uh, better. Mark, how did you weigh it up? What were the factors that that gave Verstappen his slender advantage? Yeah, I concur about the, um, the, the the lack of errors. I mean, the only error he made all year really was, was putting it in the wall on, uh, as he was about to set that pole lap in um, Saudi Arabia. And that was the only thing worth talking of that, that was a, an outright error. Um yeah, just that consistency, a pummeling consistency, and that tiny, tiny little opportunity. You know, he's going to be in the in the gap. He's just there's no there's no question of that. Uh, you know, when the, on the end of the first lap in um, uh, Abu Dhabi, when you know Lewis's tires aren't yet up to temperature, and he's going into turn six, seven, and he's a little bit early on the brake. He just knew Max was going to be in that gap. It was just there's no question. You know, it's just that's that's how he is, and he you you will always be there like a, a terrier you, got, you, you just cannot um there's there's nothing ambiguous about his performances ever and, and the way he drives um the the peaks i think you you could sometimes argue you could argue that occasionally uh lewis did something extraordinary um i'm thinking of brazil in particular but over over the season uh, max was just there all the time and as Karun said, Lewis had the off weekend in Monaco where he couldn't get the front tyres up to temperature. And that's like a switch thing. You know, you, you either do it or you don't. And if it's below, you're nowhere. And it's if above the threshold, suddenly the whole thing switches on and you're, you're fine. And that car was susceptible to that. But you can't sort of judge Max on that just because his car didn't do that. You can't say, well, that doesn't count. Of course it counts. So, um yeah, I think just a consistency of of, of brilliant um, performance, and then I think ultimately it would have been churlish not to put whoever because it was so close between them. For me, it would have been churlish to to not have whoever was world champion as number one, and that was. But I think I could you know then justify it looking back. 
by saying, well, this is, you know, there are a couple of key points where um, he just did a better job. This is disappointing because if Abu Dhabi didn't end the way it, it could, we could have an argument about whether I'd been churlish or not by putting Verstappen ahead. So that would have been that. That would have made for a much better uh, argumentative podcast. But Kareen, obviously, when it comes to Verstappen versus Hamilton, one of the big talking points is is the driving standards. Some will argue that because Verstappen is is so aggressive, and there are occasions where maybe he crossed the line, or moments where he didn't necessarily make the best decisions for his chances of uh, of getting through a, a battle how do you think that counts for or against him i spent a lot of time thinking about this um on the run-up to abu dhabi because and in fact there's there's a clip we did online you know just looking at the uncompromising style of driving that that max has that one made you very popular as well, didn't it, on social media? It did, but it, I was, I, it was great that I had Nico Rosberg there because he just sat there saying it was all, it was all wonderful and perfect. So uh, he took more of the flack than I did, <laughs> which was fine. But you know, he at the end of the day, I don't, I don't actually think what Max is doing is was outside the rules as such. I think the only one he actually deserved a penalty for was Brazil, which he didn't get. But equally, I think in Abu Dhabi, Lewis should have given the place back on the opening lap um, at turn six, and he didn't. So uh, I, I fundamentally think that the system, there's something wrong in the system. Uh, you know, I've discussed this with various various people at the FIA and, and, and stewards and even with Michael Massey. You know, I said, the rules of engagement are not clear. The rules of battle are not clear. And, and until now, this concept of racing room was fine because people weren't really pushing the envelope as much as Max is doing. And now, you know, Max has sort of redefined in many ways the way that these drivers are going racing wheel to wheel. It The rules actually need to be redefined. You know, what is acceptable, what is not, and have clarity. And I actually think, you know, pre-season testing, right? You've got all the 20 drivers there. You've got the team managers. You've got the media there. Um, we live and take the Skypad, <laughs> to be honest. And, and let's have a... let's set the new ground rules forget the precedent forget oh this happened in brazil so we have to do this here and this happened in austria 2020 so we have to pay forget all that whatever happened in the past has happened let's now say from bahrain 2022 these are the rules this is what is allowed this is not allowed let's show the examples of the previous years and say yes we did or didn't penalize but from going forward this is what we will and we won't penalize and uh, and once the drivers have clarity, the team managers have clarity, and all of us in the media have clarity, we can then show it to the fans because we're the conduit between the FIA and the fans, really. Um, and, and I think at the moment, it's not clear, but what is clear is that Max was willing to push the envelope of aggression much more than the other 19 drivers. And, um, you know, in the same way that Michael did 20 years ago, he he's willing to push it until he gets away with it. Yeah, I think that's right. The the the, the redefining of the one driver has taken a good look at the rules and say, okay, if I can do that, and it says I can't do that, well, that means it's okay to do this. And I think that's very similar to what, to what Michael did, and they had to write new rules as a result of how Michael had interpreted the old rules, and we still have those today. Um, but Max, as you say, is taking it to another level and. Quite often what it means is that the other driver, and in this case it's usually Lewis, um, has to take evasive action. And so when there's been no contact, there's quite often been deemed to be no fault just because the, you've, the, the other guy hasn't you know, chosen to be stubborn and, and say, well, no, what you're doing is wrong, so I'm going to sit here and have the accident, although he did do that on, on occasion as well. But that's yeah, that's not um, that's not a sustainable system, as you say. And when it comes to evaluating the drivers, I'm looking at it purely as what worked for the drivers, what was best for them, shall we say? And I'd, I'd say Verstappen's approach, for the most part, paid off for him. I think Saudi was the one time when when he was just sending it every time. When I think he probably needed to bring a little bit more subtlety to his game, not from a he was outrageous and evil and being terrible. It just was he playing the percentages to give himself the best outcome, which I think is an important thing. And that did play into the, the Silverstone thing where 
people insist on interpreting this to say this means you think it's Verstappen's fault. No, but when you make your racing decision to hang on around the outside there, you are taking a certain level of, of risk with that, regardless of who's at fault for, for the accident. So I think probably Max will bring a little bit more subtlety over the years as, as, as he continues to to, uh, to race and build experience. And I think that'll make him even more formidable and he'll have a slightly wider range, but he'll still have that kind of all-out attack aggression in him, which I think people do like to see. But I agree 100%. The wider problem is systemic in that racing is almost broken now, with particularly with the, the asphalt runoffs and the way they can be used. And yeah, I agree with what you were saying, Green. There needs to be a bit of a reset to really just say, right, forget the past. This is where we are now. Otherwise, you, you we're going to just keep having these <laughs> these messes going on. But I, I think the big thing with with these with these two is they were operating at such a high level. I, I had Hamilton second. We all had Hamilton second. Ninety nine percent of seasons, his performance level would earn him first in this ranking because it was so sky high we just had two drivers absolutely going at it there's probably not been a championship fight like this or very very rare when you have two drivers from different teams just hammering each other disappearing up the road pushing each other it's just been absolutely fantastic to see and there's almost that element where you want to say well put them equal number one but that's just not how this works and it would be a dreadful cop-out so you've got to pick one or the other and you've got to find some reason for doing it that's just the nature of this and i think the Races like um, Austria, for example, right, where they just disappeared, didn't they? I think wasn't it something like twenty-five seconds ahead of the rest of the pack? They they were gone, you know, half a minute ahead of their own teammates, and it was it, it was actually the most boring race of the year because nothing really happened. But the level, I remember watching some of the onboards uh, at home, so the first Austria, um, and you just. You would see as the tyres would wear off, they'd have this sort of entry instability and they'd just catch it in the most subtler ways and manage the pace and the tyre degradation in a way that nobody else in the grid could do, frankly. And both the Lewis and Max, their cars were very different. You know, design philosophy is very different, completely different um, power unit architecture and, and the way the engine was, um, the power unit was being deployed. But they, I think... That their strengths were their was their adaptability. You know, Lewis won in Bahrain, a race which Red Bull should not have lost. Frankly, you know that was that was a that should have been a slam dunk, and he he delivered so so strongly there. But on on the flip side, I look at what Max did in Austin. I thought that was his best win. You know, the fact that he he lost the start, kept his cool, stayed close in the dirty air, delivered the the high performance laps and then he learned what he did wrong in Bahrain and, and saved his tires up to attack at the end you know he didn't run out of tires and, and he um uh, you know like he what he did in um in those Austria races was extraordinary just levels of dominance that del- is completely worthy of a world champion and, and being number one on our list yeah, I think we did see little signs of learning. There was a good case in Bahrain. Obviously, a lot of people questioned what was going on with track limits. Obviously, Verstappen passed Hamilton exceeding track limits, but Hamilton was regularly exceeding track limits in other places. But that was a case that Mercedes and Hamilton had understood the guidance, whereas Red Bull and Verstappen seemed not to have done. And I think that was one of the things that Verstappen also learned from, that you've really got to be on it with these things. You've got to know, it doesn't matter what you think the rule should be or the interpretation, pay attention and push it to the limit. You know, he does that in other areas. And I think we, again, saw him understanding that, that that you can use the letter of the law to your advantage. And yeah, imagine how good Verstappen's going to be when he's Hamilton's age and he's built up uh, even greater experience. And he's maybe got the thing that, that Hamilton has a certain cleverness in the way he races that sometimes he he has other ways to to come out on top other than just kind of launching the the mega move he can still do that he's still got that in him but he's got quite a broad toolbox in terms of how to do it and Verstappen will build that toolbox as time goes on I don't think anybody would expect him to end his career as a one-time Formula One world champion and regardless of how the whole thing ended that wasn't Max Verstappen's fault Ultimately, he he was not the architect of that situation. He was just a guy sat in a racing car, presented with an opportunity, and he took it. That's that's his job. 
And he's talked about that since. He said, well, we were presented the opportunity, still had to take advantage of it. So that that's not a problem for for him. And yeah, people can be justifiably unhappy about the way it ended. And I'm sure Mercedes and Hamilton will feel that sense of injustice for, for the rest of their days. But that's just the, the way it happened. And Verstappen did what he needed to do. The thing that I'm really excited about is the fact we could have these two hopefully with a few others involved as well in the future, but we could have these two going at it for another few years. Hamilton's got two years on his contract, assuming he doesn't decide to uh, pack it all in. So this could just be the first chapter of this this generational battle, and no doubt Hamilton's not going to want to lie down and not get this title back again. So th- this is this is part one. Really exciting, isn't it, Mark? This, th- these are the rivalries that, that motor racing thrives on. Yeah, absolutely. It's going to be the stuff of legend in years to come. I do hope that Lewis does continue um, because there's been some questions about that. And I think just in the, you know, the the disappointment of the moment and then when he was being interviewed after the race by Jensen, who's, who'd said, well, we're looking forward to you coming back next year and then getting that title back. He he just said something like, oh, we'll, we'll see about next year. And it, that just created a little bit of a, a question mark. But um, I'm sure that was just... Uh, in the moment of disappointment, and um, yeah, I, I can see Lewis being uh, very hungry to to continue the battle. Yeah, you'll have that, that moment when it's all gone wrong and gone against you, when you probably do want to walk away. Uh, I'm sure we've all had situations like that where you just want to be done with it, and uh, uh, and over time that that sort of that that sort of thing changes. What do you think, Corinne? Lewis is still going to be around next year, isn't he? Of course he is. I, I think I think uh, he's interested and excited for. The challenge, you know, he he wants to. He, I think that motivation of getting the eighth world championship is still extremely high for him, and I can't see him carrying on beyond this contract. But I think he will see this contract of the next two year deal, and I think that'll be the end of it then. Yeah, and we'll see next year, hopefully, when they go up against each other again on track, and maybe with a few of these other guys, the Ferrari drivers, the McLaren drivers, the Alpine drivers, are obviously the ones who have the best perhaps potential in their teams to be up the front and that could make it even more complicated to do our, our top 10 for next season. So thanks very much to Corinne Chandock and Mark Hughes for your insights. Head to therace.com and don't forget the hyphen for the latest on F1 and the rest of the motorsport world. Don't forget our YouTube channel as well and also our other podcasts covering MotoGP, Formula E and IndyCar and of course Bring Back V10s which tells classic F1 stories. We will be continuing to podcast as always throughout the off-season so we'll be back soon with the latest from the world of Formula One. <laughs>